0: Remember, remember, Christine, this bit we've got a smile. Do you remember that bit? <laughs> like, like a Cheshire cat. Oh, hello everyone. We're gonna let you all in. I'm gonna do this. Christine, say hello to everyone. Hello. I am in Cheshire, but I'm not a cat. Da, da, da. Hello, everyone. Welcome to your all pile in. And if you can just turn off your videos as you as you come in that would be fantastic we're having lots of technical issues today so it's all all very exciting uh, uh, christine what was i going to ask you is is autumn your favorite your favorite uh, season no spring is it I, you know I, I, it's everybody's i quite uh, liked autumn until until this morning can i tell tell you what happened to me this morning so it, it's it was so so dark this morning i just uh, I, I came, came out, grabbed uh, my dog, grabbed a dog lead and um, went out to the back of my garden, as I, as I always do, heading towards the, the back gate. And I then saw two squirrels closely followed by my Labrador, who's um, on the sofa over, over there in the office, um, who promptly bowled me over and he threw me straight into my back gate. Um, and I landed up, and I, I thought, I thought it would be nice if I could actually land in something soft, like I don't know, a watercress bed. But oh no, I landed up in a in a, in a nettle bed full of uh, unopened conkers. So I then get my lead out, but it turns out to be a pashmina. It was so dark, I'd grabbed the pashmina instead of a, a dog lead, wrapped it around the, uh, the, the Labrador. So I'm upside down in this nettle, um, a bunch, bunch of nettles, looking upside down at this slobbery Labrador, who's thinking this is fun, with the two squirrels in the tree looking above me. So I used to like autumn, but uh, now, now I don't. Oh, I am sorry. Yeah, don't, you still don't be ridiculous. So, so come on, let, let's uh, let's be serious. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Women in Food and Farming. This is our October broadcast uh, with a fantastic guest speaker uh, being Judith Batchelor, OBE. If we can get, get her on, as we just test test the uh, the links. And Kirsty's waving her magic wand. Um, Hurry, um, Christine. What a oh, what what a week. We're just we're in our green room. We were just saying how well. Let's be honest. How how negative some of the news is, especially within uh, the agricultural sphere. What are you seeing, please?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I would say it is fantastic to have such a huge profile for our food chain and what we're doing, and just to stop everybody taking it for granted. I almost feel like this week's probably done as much of people understanding our industry as Jeremy Clarkson did with his Amazon series. And, you know, people are just beginning to understand all of the jobs that there are that in order to get food from, from the field to people's plates.
0: Okay, and we've got the the Tory party conference on the go at the moment. Uh, There was a very, very interesting set of interviews with with Boris Johnson, which I know will have riled up some of the the sector in the respect of he says that this is just leveling out the the lack of labour, the lack of haulage, uh, the other issues that that we've we've got. And and I I feel especially for the for the pig and poultry um, sectors because of this backlog that's um, that's happening, especially within the pig sector. What's your take on that, please?
1: Well, bear in mind we've really been involved in it from the beginning with Red Tractor because we have stocking density yeah. standards. So, you know, we've been working with the farmers and helping and trying to do everything we can to make sure that we get the right balance of animal welfare and actually understanding the situation that they're all in. And, uh, the, you know, I, I, people were saying, can you do more to help? And I just didn't know what to do. And now, instead of seeing the publicity that they're getting and trying to get people to understand, But, I mean, we we didn't have a prime minister that understood what was going on. On the Andrew Marr show, he thought that we were really, he didn't understand it at all. Andrew Marr, tell him what the issue was. And then he referred, I was just saying, we were saying earlier, he then referred to a hecatomb. Um, And uh, I I then had to look it up. I don't know how many people on the call know what a hecatomb is.
0: Tell us, please tell us what a hecatomb is. Well, it's from ancient Greece or Rome, and it's a great
1: public sacrifice originally of 100 oxen. And he referred to the fact that he didn't believe that there was going to be a hecatomb of of pigs. Um, Whereas people were saying, actually, there's 150,000 pigs backed up on farm and every week we don't do something. There's another 15,000 pigs and they're all getting far too heavy. And Much easier. I mean, I think what people are really annoyed about is that that labour has been offered to poultry, but not to pigs. And actually poultry is a much shorter life cycle. I think it, it 42 days. From a from a, a you know, to, to get to get to a broiler hen. So it's much easier for them to react when there's a problem. Whereas you pigs, you've actually got to go from a piglet to something of 115 kilos. And that takes a while.
0: Yeah, but on the poultry side, I think I think the term is hatched to hatch to dispatch. Um, and it's uh it normally is 30 33 days. It's uh, it's phenomenal. The uh the, uh, the, the, the speed of on, on that side. But yeah, the, the problem with the, obviously with the, with, with the uh, pork industry is that the uh, the, beasties, the beasties can't physically fit through the process uh, because, because of the size, because they're overweight. So that, that's the worry is that they, they, they get uh, thrown out. And, and Christina, if you want to be Machiavellian, you'd say that the government have looked to bring in these um, uh, temporary visas for the poultry workers um, simply because of Christmas, simply because of turkeys. Because if we don't have turkeys on our plates, um, uh, it's got to be a vote, vote loser. Um, so we've got to have Turkey, but to to what not looking to put you on the spot, but do you think the government is therefore short-sighted to only allow uh, those temporary visas for those sectors? What, why can't we have temporary visas for the for these other sectors as well?
1: I just think I think as they understand the gravity of each issue, temporary visas will be issued. I just think that the is the point is they haven't understood it and they hasn't grasped it, and it's a it's a huge. I was going to say it would be a failure of our industry, but it is terribly difficult to get people's attention. Um, but I think we've got it now.
0: Excellent. And I've got great news that Judith has entered the, uh, the, the, the room. Um, we had technical problems getting Judith in. Judith has already been very busy sorting out Facebook. Judith, you, you, said, Judith, you just turn your ears on, please. So Ju- Judith was uh, called in by Mark Zuckerberg yesterday because uh, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, Instagram went down for six hours. And Judith was called called in and just fixed that. And she's just fixed our technical problems as well. Judith, you're amazing.
2: Oh God. It's, a,
0: it, it's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Is <laughs> it nothing that you can't do? Judith <laughs> yeah, quite
2: a few things actually, like get into a Zoom
0: call. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have we'll have the uh the we'll have the post-match analysis a little bit later to see what went wrong. Uh, but but you're in. That's fantastic. So so Judith, how do you know Christine? Christine, how do you know Judith? Judith, you go first.
2: Oh well, very many years ago, we both used to work at Mars in um, chocolate in Dundee Road in Slough. So that was my first meeting, and of course, over the intervening years, which must be about thirty something <laughs> years, our paths have crossed on many occasions.
0: Excellent, and, and you've got to t- tell me, t- tell me if this is a um, this is an urban myth that um, in the the chocolate industry for the likes of Kit Kat. Um, you, you're allowed 24 hours free consumption of Kit Kats if you work in the factory on the basis that you'll never eat another Kit Kat again. Is that, is that true in the chocolate sector? Can you First remember?
1: of all, Max, you've made a massive faux pas there.
0: Oh, hello. This Kit- is not
1: made by Mars. If you could have gone for anything from Mars to Snickers to Twix to Milky Way to. I only
0: know Kit Kat. I only know my story of Kit Kat, but carry <laughs> on, Christine.
1: But Keep wait, murdering what, me. It- everything that was made every day used to get put in those brown trays that you generally used to see in small convenience stores and they were laid out beautifully and they were placed all around the office and it was our duty to eat them and if they tasted funny that there was a number you had to ring so we were actually eating them before they'd had their microbiological tests and before they'd been released to the public and I remember in all the time I was there and I sampled quite a lot because it was my duty to do so. Um, I, I remember a bounty that tasted really odd and they established in the end that there had been a certain um, varnish that had been used on the palate and it had tainted the coconut and the whole lot got put on hold and nothing actually went out to the public. So we did, we were able to eat as much as we wanted and we got a free bag of sweets every week, didn't we, Judith?
0: Excellent. So so come on, Judith, what, what, was, what, what, what was your favourite chocolate back in the day then? No.
2: Oh, I, I do think I'm a galaxy girl and I know it's not very smart and I should be going for something with 70% cocoa solids, but oh, no. it is a lovely product.
0: You, you you enjoy that. So, so Judith, um, you very kindly um, came in. We're, we're just going to brief you live as, as to what women and food and farming in this broadcast is all about. Christine, could you explain to Judith and anyone else who isn't, uh, who's new into the party, into the group, all about women and food and farming, please, Christine?
1: um it, it's very informal but it's basically a network of women working anywhere in our industry we like to have a huge focus on younger people you know what we want to do is have people not necessarily as proper mentors but be able to have a chat and give advice and help people uh, particularly those coming into the industry it's like those who've been around a long time are quite used to working in the field of men and we're just trying to help everybody else um and i think we found that just by having these events and provide people being able to chat to each other that uh, we were able to support people support, particularly the under 30s. And uh, we used to meet three times a year in London and uh, uh, Max was setting up his uh, Beanstalk Global and we had a chat and decided to do a one-off. And he said to me, come on, Christine, you can do this every month. You can find a speaker every month. And we've now been nearly going a year, haven't
0: we virtually? We we have and uh, to, to, to great results because it's uh, it's interesting how this works that when we started uh, the Beanstalk uh, platforms most people were uh, viewing live on Zoom because it was still quite uh, quite new. What we found now is that uh, 90% of the people um, who are who are watching are watching on catch-up. So we're streaming live now to Facebook and we're streaming live to LinkedIn. Um, and as soon as uh, we we finish, we'll put the recording out onto YouTube and the podcast series. And we tend to see, Christy, what's the figures over a set, seven to ten day period? We see anywhere between three and a half and seven and a half thousand views total views um of these broadcasts so they're, they're really impactful and what i also enjoy uh christine is it's not just uk we've got some amazing people dialed in from overseas i think nina uh, nina patel from fresh express in india one of the best great growers in india is also also dialed in who's been a been, been a previous speaker so yeah hopefully we'll get back to face to face but in the meantime we'll keep going on on this basis christine with uh, with yourself and your your team and uh, keep pushing the message for women and food and farming
1: and we have our little opportunity to network at the end so we're still trying to keep up that basis but uh, you know I, i'm just looking forward to more people being part of part of the network signing up to join us and to feel that they can contact anybody in the network almost everybody that signs up by the way ticks the box that says their details can be shared so if anybody contacts me after a meeting and said can you help me get in touch with x y or z i, I can do that but anyway i i don't want to hog the time can i just hand over to you max to work with, to to go take over with judith
0: yes please and um anyone who's got their video in uh, on so i'm looking at jessica i'm looking at maggie uh, can can you turn them off please um just just cuz the way that we we've got set up on zoom and the breakout rooms we need to allow every everyone in so if you if you've got your video on apart from judith if you could turn this off that would be uh, that would be fan- fantastic so judith um just on the basis that you've come in on a different account do you want to just check that you can uh, screen share Oh, Judith, just turn your ears on. That inevitable saying.
2: So have you got that?
0: Let us see. And the answer is no. Yes. (laughs) So, so Judith, just before. Just before you go live, I just wanted to do um, one thing, if that's okay. Just for the, especially for the, uh, for the people on the on the podcast, I just wanted to give a bit of a, a background um, to to yourself. Most people know about you, but there'll be some uh, recent graduates or um, some of our overseas people who dialed in who won't be fully aware of you. So, if it's okay, just let me give you a, um, a bit of a background on yourself, Judith, uh, so you can you can check my uh, my, my research. So we're delighted to be joined today by Judith Batchelor, OBE, Special Advisor on CR&S and Public Affairs for Sainsbury's. And she's kindly talking to us on her views of a systems-based approach to sustainability, challenges and opportunities majoring on the food sector. Judith was awarded an OBE in 2015 for services to farming and the food industry. She also sits on the government's Food and Drink Sector Council, is a non-executive director of the Environment Agency and the Rugby Players Association, and is also a trustee of the Prince's Accounting for Sustainability Project, as well as the Royal Botanic Gardens. She's worked in the food and drink industry for more than 38 years. And prior to joining Sainsbury's, she was the director at Safeway and also spent 12 years in the food division of Marks and Spencers. Judith, how does that sound? Did I did I get that spot on? Or have you got anything else to add? No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Thank Excellent. you. So Thank sh- you. Shall, we, shall we let you run with this? Because this is going to be it's, it's right on, on message. And I I I think we'd be really interested to, especially also get the questions at the at the end. So, is okay if we just let you run, run with this, and we'll catch up at the uh, up at the end.
2: Yeah, no, brilliant, and and um, happy to share these slides. And obviously, you've, you've got the uh, the recording. Um, but so. I I wanted to just kick off by saying that I've approached this from, um, I suppose, with my UK research and innovation hat on, on the basis that I think that innovation is going to be our salvation when it comes to sustainability challenges and whether that's climate change, whether that's nature or whether it's people. um, We have got to be innovative if we are going to tackle these grandest challenges of our time. So um, hold that thought in your mind because I, I think it will be an interesting conversation when we start to come to the questions. And I suppose I would start with the fact that Basically, it doesn't doesn't matter which lens you look at our food system through, whether that's the lens of plastic pollution in our oceans, whether it's the lens of agriculture, whether it's the lens of food waste and and how much is wasted each year or it's whether it's through the lens of malnutrition, our food system is not geared up for the future. And it's certainly not geared up for a net zero and biodiversity net gain um, scenario where we restore the planet to its um, former health. And when you look at what some of those challenges are, and you you think about, you know, some of the the statistics on biodiversity, where 50% of the world's recorded biodiversity, and I say recorded, because clearly a lot of um, nature's secrets haven't yet been recorded and we're losing those things faster than we can record them. 50% of recorded biodiversity has been lost since 1970 um, and that is a is a horrific figure and, and we are now in the decade of change which means if we don't do something in the next decade um, then we really have reached that biological tipping point. Um, but the, the key thing for me in all of this is that means the whole system has to shift and and that is a transformation that has we've never done it before we've never talked about food systems we talk about value chains we talk about supply chains we talk about what's happening in retail or manufacturing or you know even better at least we've stopped using pre and post farm gate but we don't talk about systemic change and, and managing the system. And, um, and by the system, I don't just mean the system as in the supply side system, but I also mean the whole enabling environment that enables the system to shift. And whether that is policymakers, whether that is the EU and UK or global food systems, whether it's skills, knowledge exchange, or even research and innovation, um, we cannot, shift that system without a systems-based approach and if I think about what that means um, that means bringing together all the things that I've just talked about it means bringing together greenhouse gas emissions biodiversity so on and so forth and I suppose for me what becomes very obvious and and it became obvious because you know working in retail and indeed working in manufacturing and sourcing products from all around the world, it is very clear that um, what is right in South America is is very different from what is right to do in South Africa, is very different from what you might do in North America. And it is impossible to optimize all of those things. So you can deal with the people issues, you can deal with nature, you can deal with greenhouse gases, but if you're going to put all of those together in a particular location, then you will have to manage a series of complex trade offs. Because again, you can't, you can't optimize all those things. And and that is really difficult when the science is still evolving, there are multiple interdependencies, and um, we don't necessarily have the data to do that. So, I think if we're going to manage this massive system shift that we're going to have to achieve over the next 10 years we need to take on questions around innovation um, questions around data standards how we get that global national local thing working properly because we are part of a global um, food system and how we create a level playing field so that When we are managing our impacts and we are looking at our materiality and our risks and our opportunities around the world we're all speaking with the same language and with the same currency which at the moment um, isn't necessarily true. So um, if I could take innovation I think innovation in all respects so what we source and you would expect me to say this as a trustee of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew Um, There are some fabulous programs around crop wild relatives, and you may have read in the press recently about the third species of coffee, Stenophila coffea, that has been um, not discovered because it's been there for over 100 years, but rediscovered in Uganda, and this particular coffee is something halfway between an arabica and a robusta but it is climate resistant and it grows at higher altitudes it grows in droughtier conditions and it tastes pretty good too so those kind of things around what we're sourcing and then how we source it because you you will know that palm oil soya and all of these crops are demonized Um, because of the way that they are produced, but actually the reason that those crops have been commercialized is they are pretty wonderful crops. They are highly productive, they convert the energy of the sun into plant material very effectively, they've got good nutrition properties, and therefore they've been commercialized. The issue isn't the crop, the issue is the responsible commercialization. Um, and then there's how we buy it, you know, what do new business models look like in the future that, that reward, particularly the smallholder producers that produce 35% of our food um, and some of the big commodities like tea, coffee, sugar, bananas, cocoa, and then finally how we sell it and how we present um, these products to customers so that they can make more informed choices. On data standards and reporting, it is about um, making sure that data is is standardized, basically, and that it is collected consistently accurately with the same methodologies, that that data is interoperable, that we can classify that data and benchmark it in order for comparisons to be made, Um, And to make sure that when we say everything adds up to net zero, it actually does add up to net zero and not some other number, because that would be a dreadful um, mistake. And then, if we get all of those things right, we then can talk to customers with confidence and conviction that we are actually um, giving them information that would enable them to make more informed choices. I talked about the fact that we're part of a global food system and that every location has its um, own unique combination of factors and therefore there are very few generic solutions Um, but the key thing is how do we make decisions locally that help us with some of those global impacts and how do we as a net consuming community in the UK, make sure we do the right things for those communities that are producing food on our behalf and that we just don't export our footprints, export our greenhouse gas emissions and offshore things. And, you know, what does that mean for trade deals, for example? So, another hot topic I'm sure that will come out in the discussion later. And then on reporting and um, and how all of that works. This is an incredibly crowded space with um, everything from CDP, science-based targets, B Corp, you name it. Um, At the moment, the the great big story is um, the Value Reporting Foundation that's going to be uh, created as a result of merging of um, SASB and the International Integrated Reporting Council. That, That is really, really important in terms of creating a global standard for reporting on these things, but there's much more consolidation that needs to happen in this space if we are truly to be able to say we're all reporting the same things with the same level of transparency and with the same level of accuracy and consistency across the globe. And, At the moment, we've got more new initiatives and more reporting requirements created every day than we are consolidating those into something everyone can align around. So hopeful for this um, at COP26, definitely. Uh, And then the last bit, I suppose, for me is how you create what I would call connected business cases. So none of us operate in splendid isolation. We are all part of the system. And therefore when we start to talk about impact um, and the full business value, that cannot be just about a business operating in its own silo or vacuum. It has to be that connected business case. And and we often talk about the fact that you have a single intervention with multiple benefits, Uh, but often we don't measure those multiple benefits. We only measure the benefit that we intended from that intervention. So for example, um, food waste is a good one because we can manage food waste. We can hit our targets on food waste. And we can talk about that in tons of food that is saved and um, people that are fed because of that. But also are the tons of greenhouse gases that are um, saved by not wasting that food. There are the tons of water um, that are saved by not wasting that food. And there are the pounds of money uh, that are saved by not wasting the human resources and other resources that went into producing that food. But, But normally we don't report on those things and we don't think about those things. If we did, the value in some of these interventions would be enormous and we would be able to persuade people more actively to take action on those things. So thinking as a system and and, and identifying the full value of any of these interventions, I think is is hugely important and it's a big opportunity. And it's the kind of thing that investors in business are looking for um, in order to justify investing in the right things, in the right innovations. So that's the sort of fly through of all of that. Um, There's some recommended reading here But but essentially, um, I thought that might set us up for a lively discussion and questions later. So thank
0: you. Thank you very much. I always remember back to I can't remember what year it was, the, the city food lecture when you were one of the one of the one of the panel and you were so eloquent on that panel and so to be able to be on a panel like that in front in front of 500 lumaries um as well as being able to present uh, to no one it feels like you're presenting to no one when you're doing a presentation <laughs> such, such as this is a great skill to have um both, both ways and, and this presentation is as, as you say it's going to open up so so many other questions can we have christine camilla kirsty Beverly and Debbie back in, and, and can I just start with um, one question? And, and um, everyone, if you've got questions, if you could put them into the um, the, the the chat section, we'll, we'll present them over to, to Judith as we as we continue. Um, Judith, are there parallels on on a retail perspective to the motor sector in that the motor mo, motor industry is going through this transformational change as we all swap over to electric cars? Um, Christine's all shown up about her electric car and, uh, when I couldn't move anywhere because I didn't have any fuel, but Christy was uh, zipping all, all over the, her, her area because she had an electric car to, to walk her dog. The 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 motor industry, the Audis, the BMWs, the Mercedes of the world, have had to go through a seismic shift because all of their infrastructure for decades has been built around a combustion engine. You then get new startups like Tesla and Polestar coming along and they've got no baggage. They could just go straight for electric and have none of this associated um, supply chain um, issues in the, in, the, in the way of the combustion engine. With retail, uh, how how can retail uh, really push forward internationally on a sustainable um, um ba- basis when they've got all of that that legacy and the suppliers have all got that legacy? What, what's the magic wand on that, please,
2: Judith? I, I think it's it, there's no magic wand, but there is a bit of push and pull. And um, by that I mean the pull from the um the market, from consumers, because you know, fundamentally. There is very little market pull at the moment in the food sector because it's very difficult for customers to make informed choices because they don't have the information to do that. And you can see something like the Competition and Markets Authority getting involved in greenwash and green labelling challenges as being evidence of the fact that there is no consensus on that. So I think we do need to create a scenario where there can be market pull. And we know that 67%, I think, according to Kantar, of customers want to make more sustainable choices, but they don't know how. Um, And only 22% of them can name any kind of organization that's doing a good job in that space. And then the second thing is we need the push from the supply chain. And if you look at what constitutes a healthy and sustainable diet, There is a complete mismatch between the food that is being produced by the global food system and the food we should be eating for a healthy and sustainable diet. Now, clearly, there's not going to be a great act of faith that says we're going to stop producing the food we're currently producing and produce the food that people should be eating. But we do need a meeting of minds in the middle. Otherwise, we will never shift the system.
0: Yeah, well, well well, said. And for, for me, for my learnings, having travelled a little bit, the UK, on a retail pers- uh, perspective, is seen as the centre of excellence of retail globally. So if the likes of Sainsbury's and your colleagues, Judith, can create that magic dust to create this change, we're not only going to see that in the UK, we're going to see that internationally. Uh, Beverly, can you just turn your ears on? So Beverly only runs um, uh, half, half a billion pound um, fresh produce business... <laughs> On a a, a UK international basis. Uh, I'm going
3: to see Beverly tomorrow. (laughs) I've just just been promoted.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to tell John Shropshire?
3: i think he'll be there too judith. oh no okay I'll,
0: I'll send him i'll send him a whatsapp later um <laughs> judith, judith your your business um are, are you are you looking to change are you looking to change in, in parallel with the, with the lights of the, the 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 retailers or are you hitting speed bumps where are you with this please did, did you mean beverly yeah yeah sorry beverly. um
3: yeah <laughs> um well yes, yeah, so we're looking to change i don't know that we're looking to change we're looking to do more of it so um We've got lots of things on the go on the whole ESG agenda. So whether that be environment and regenerative farming, or whether it be the the work that we do with our communities or a great place to work. So the people that work with us um, and each of our products. So, you know, managing to source from the right places and grow the products that perhaps need less interventions than than, um, they might have done traditionally. So um, I think we've always had a real drive for that because it fits perfectly with uh, kind of our overall values. But we, it's something that we really do want to embrace and make the most of. But I was particularly interested in what Judith had to say about uh, measurement and, um, you know, starting from the right base because I know that's something that we've struggled with. And we know that businesses in general, when you come to kind of – measure the value of the triple bottom line in one way is really difficult. And particularly, you know, and the things that I'm kind of really interested in, which is the people aspect of that triple bottom line. Um, It's often hard to quantify that benefit and some of the social things that, that you do. Um, but equally, I know, for instance, with the carbon measurements, even as something that you might think is as straightforward as that, we've had hiccups, and like you say, there's been bumps on the road where we've tried with one product and moved to another one, and you know, we're trying to work out. Um, we've adopted this the science based targets approach, and you know, so it's just a matter of trying to find your way. So I think it'd be really interesting, Judith, to know what you think about how we can better support um maybe you know medium sized businesses to, to be able to adopt some of these things and know know where to go and where to start.
2: I, I think it's a really good point because um I'm I'm of the view that um this has to be democratized in that these things have to be available to everybody. And I, I always use nutrition labeling as a good example where you've got a database of typical values um, we've got a mandated format for putting a nutrition label on the product, and everyone can do it. And, and if you've got a super duper product that's reduced sugar or reduced fats, you can pay to have that product tested. You can reference it against a standardized database of typical values, and you can make a claim. And that sounds incredibly simple, but it's taken us 24 years to do that. Um, right from the first kind of nutrition labeling in, in uh, 1990, whatever it was. And um, we haven't got that time on um, environmental and uh, sustainability labeling. And, and we, we need to move in an aligned way. But of course, there are already very, very many vested interests in this that have invested a lot of money in proprietary tools, in their own labeling schemes, who uh, have been innovative and seen the opportunity but that is not going to work unless um, these things are freely available to everybody so that every SME, every medium sized business, as well as the big global multinationals can all adopt the same um, data and labeling policies that enable customers to make informed choices. And without that, we're just going to have anarchy, which is why I'm wow. pleased the CMA have stepped in on this because um, someone needs to get their arms around it. and. Um, it's probably a good role for
0: government to play in that. Judith, well so uh, Christy, just turning to you, with what uh, Judith has uh, educated us on on the push-pull, do we need a big stick? In the respect of you, you look at the, the issues that we had in the UK on uh, tobacco and uh, all the uh, ongoing problems with the with the NHS. We, in effect, banned tobacco by pricing it um, out, out of the, the, the way of the consumer. It's the National Food Strategy, that, which is currently in the white paper stage um, in uh, the House of Commons. Is this going to be our big stick that we need to deploy to educate the consumer to eat better? That's then going to help the retailers. That's then, then it's going to then subsequently help the suppliers. Christine, what do you think?
1: It's, it's so hard because, you know, having, having started off a career in Mars when we used to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with eating chocolate, it's just getting the right balance to your diet. And of course, all of the cheap ingredients of sugar and wheat and um, skim milk powder and water are the main constituents of almost every one of the really big branded products that are cheap and you know you're effectively just paying for the marketing you know if you think about something like Coca-Cola and so therefore they are always able to do the biggest promotions and the deepest promotions and and lots of work on how to make sure that it's all infinitely accessible and you know we we had all sorts of training at Mars about how many more Mars you bars you would sell if you had two facings or three facings or four facings and I think that it really comes down to a sort of one thing about my marketing training right from the beginning, which is that the consumer is always right. And you've always got to give the consumer what they want. And I think I think Sainsbury's always had only two rules. They always had two rules up. And one is the, uh, the, um, the consumer is always right. And rule number two is in the event that the consumer is wrong, reread rule number one. <laughs> And I just I, sorry, Judith, if I've misremembered it, but it was just that whole idea of, you know, maybe actually giving the consumer what they want and making all of these sorts of foods readily available and cheap. And, and it's it's just the consumer's wrong. And I think that's what I thought that Henry did such a good way of saying we're programmed to do this. It's addictive and we need to help break people's addictions with it. And um, and I think you know a lot of you know I don't know that the government has dared i mean the retailers I think were much braver than the government ever were to start removing sweets from counters and all of, all of that's all being part of it. We have a massive salt reduction initiative, but these things take decades, yeah I'm just thinking how do we how do we do it that much faster, and do we really want a nanny state where we've got to listen to the government telling us that we're all wrong
0: yeah yeah but that yeah, I, I get that, but there's just a huge burden on the NHS at, at the moment. With, with whatever the stats show, that the, a vast, um, a vast number of people will be type two diabetes if they don't change their, their eating habits. And why they're not changing their eating habits? Because there's ten large multinationals who are constantly promoting uh, unfit food for them, rather than them potentially buying uh, fresh, fresh produce. Just, just spread it around. Camilla, can you just give an um, tell tell everyone what you do, what what your business does? Because I've got a subsequent question for you, if that's okay.
4: So um, I work in AgriTech. so we make software for farmers to help them to keep track of what's going on in their business, it's called Field Margin, so basically making it really easy for farmers to record what they've done on their farm on a day-to-day basis, so what inputs they've used, um, what pest issues they're seeing, and then allowing them to bring that data together so that they can make better informed decisions, so coming back to that point about data and ma- measurement, making that very accessible for the people who are actually producing food and are boots on the ground doing it.
0: Excellent. I, I am about to, about to ask you a question, but I've just had a WhatsApp in. Where is Camilla? It's so light, it looks like it's 10 o'clock in the morning with her. <laughs> I'm, I'm in London. Really? The, the yeah. light always shines 24 in, in, in hour London. City. Excellent. So with, so with your business, the, the question is, how do you incorporate sustainability into your business? How do you create change within the ag tech field? Or is it something that you're, you're not looking to do? I, don't, I know the answer, but I'd love to hear your, your response, please. Uh,
4: for us, we're, our focus is on giving farmers the tools to make better informed decisions. So rather than pushing them to change their system, saying, here's a toolbox of things that you can use on your farm to record your processes. And then by having that measurement of what, how has that panned out, they can use that to make their farm a better place. And we've got some fantastic case studies of users doing things all over the world from managing safari parks, to looking at deer conservation to regenerative farms in the UK, but it's really about allowing the farmer to take the lead lead, rather than pushing them to change for our business.
0: And, and everyone, I'm sure you're going to agree with me. If one, if there's one thing I've learned over the last 18 months, having done 150, 160 plus broadcasts, it's collaboration. I, I'm loving what uh, Judith was saying about the push-pull effect. As we all know, six out of 10 kids, unfortunately, don't know where fruit and veg comes from um, in the UK. With um, uh, with the, the likes of veg power, who, who are just getting bigger and bigger, um, some, some of the... Uh, Projects that they got on the go to educate kids as to where uh, produce is coming from is transforming some of their lives. And just going back to Henry Dimbleby, we were very uh, fortunate to um, interview him. his co-partner in chefs and schools last Friday. So uh, uh, Henry's school lost the, the, the chef and he put out a message on Twitter, anyone out there wanting to transform school um, uh, uh, catering system, not thinking that he'd get anything from it. But then this uh, qualified chef came through Move it through two two years. They've now got kids in Hackney foraging uh, for food, filleting fish on a Wednesday, uh, ready for them all to eat it on, on a Friday. And they've now got uh, fifty schools doing the same thing, and they've uh, they, they've got twenty thousand kids involved. Um, and uh, if all, all elements of that catering system are now involved with all of the those schools. so I agree with what um, Christine says that it takes decades sometimes to, to move these thing, things on uh, but with collaboration it, there's definitely a, a way to go. Uh, Debbie, come on what, what, what do you think with with everything that you and I've seen in, the, in in your retail background do you, do you think we can be optimistic or should, should we just, should we just turn off the lights now?
5: No, we can be optimistic. We've got so much good stuff, but it is about people collaborating, sharing data and having a common purpose to, to, to go forwards. It would be nice to think which of the areas of, say, for instance, fresh produce would be the pilots for, for getting better in the supply chain and what that could look like. Um, I, I guess it's, it's you know, there's, there's going to be a sort of bit of magic somewhere and one particular supply chain, it may well be something like G's because they are very forward thinking. So, yes. yeah, good, good. Look forward to it.
0: Yes, especially with their new leader, Beverly. Um, I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to have broken the news on that one. Kirsty just give a background as to what you do, apart from um, sorting out my technical nightmares. What, <laughs> what is MDS, the amazing business that is MDS?
6: Yeah, so other than my sort of technical saviours, MDS, we are a graduate development programme, so we are really focused on getting um, predominantly young people fresh out of university or looking to start their careers into the food and fresh produce industry. Um, And I would definitely say the things that we're talking about today is something that often comes up about the reasons why they want to work within this industry.
0: Do you, do you, are you seeing more of a clamour? Are you seeing more applications coming through to um, MDS because uh, the younger generation, they don't want to work for, and I always use the example, Goldman Sachs, and get paid £120,000 yeah. in their f- first year and work 130 hours a week. They actually want to get into a sector that does good for them to do good, for them to contribute, for them to, to, to make make a better world. i would be very jingoistic, but are you seeing that?
6: yeah we definitely are when we ask so when we have these conversations about what is their motivation they talk about how they want to doing something which is fulfilling to them that they're going to be able to give back to their community that they see the work as being essential um and then the topic of sustainability comes up and they all want to save the world and find the magic solution um we do so if we, we try to encourage them in um, finding that, that way into the, the industry to work around that. But again, I think there's an education issue here because they'll often say, well, I want to work within a sustainable business. I know that plastic packaging is an issue. I want to solve that. And that's because that's the narrative that they are being fed and it might be better for them if they understood more about all the other contributing um, factors and it's not all about getting rid of plastic straws and plastic um, packaging. It's a wider supply chain issue.
0: Yeah. Well what's well, so, a Judith, great question we've just had in from Claire Ottridge. Is there a view that the conversation needs to move away from educate, educating the consumer to engaging the consumer in a way that they want? At present, it seems to be a one-size-fits-all strategy that takes no account for demographics or uh, physiographics, et cetera. Sainsbury's, you you must have a powerhouse of a team Crunching that data to uh, look to give the consumer what they want and, and take them on on the journey. What again? I'm going to use that expression. Like what, what's the magic wand on on that within within Sainsbury's within retail to get that uh, that that consumer on board?
2: Well, I think uh, the first point, just to build on what Christine was saying earlier, I think um, we've moved away from being customer focused to being customer centric, and what I mean by that is. Um, understanding what customers want and what motivates them, but also um, layering on top of that if customers knew what we know what would they expect us to do. Um, and that's where the data comes in, because we can look at a very granular level around what different consumers are doing so, for example, um, when the pandemic kicked off and we um, were looking at uh, lots of people who were using food banks and food donation schemes. One of the things that became very obvious was that we could see where families using the data um, in our stores who were entitled to free school meals or healthy start vouchers weren't necessarily taking them up. And in fact, the government identified that 50% of families who were entitled to Healthy Start vouchers weren't claiming them and weren't using them. We can then take those, those customers and add to their Healthy Start vouchers with vouchers for fruit and veg. That kind of very, very specific intervention Um, using the data that you have, and you can do that when you've got a, a, a Nectar card or a club card or any other kind of card where you can identify those customers, you can do the right things to help them in the right places. So definitely. And I think geospatial data and being able to locate those individuals and create specific interventions for specific communities, It's quite interesting, and there was some great work done with the Consumer Goods Forum and all the retailers here, actually, in the UK, in Southwark and Lambeth, working with Guy's and St Thomas's Charity on very specific interventions for Southwark and Lambeth. Uh, Judith, thank
0: you. I've, I've just had a WhatsApp in asking, um, could you ask Judith, do you think the consumer is going to get more divorced um, from the actual uh, retail store as we go more and more online? Is it going to be more difficult to educate, to excite the consumer as they buy on a laptop rather than they come into store?
2: Uh, We definitely know it's very difficult to get customers to try new things when they shop online because they've got their favorites, they've got their shopping basket, and it's very easy and convenient just to go back to your favorites list and order what you normally order. So it is difficult to get people to try something new, but there are ways of doing that. Um, And I think the other thing, if you look at what is predominantly bought online, it's what we would call the bulkies. Yeah. It's the yeah. toilet rolls. It's the household items, and that people are still shopping for fresh food, which I think is really encouraging. So, long may that continue.
0: Excellent, Christy. With your previous background as a grocery code adjudicator, the the, the lights of online, um, did that frighten you in the respect of is actually more difficult to communicate with the with with the consumer than if they come into store?
1: Um, No, Max, that role had nothing to do with the consumer. It was all about retailers and their suppliers. And uh, I just made it very clear to the retailers that whether they were selling something in a store or online, then the rules were still the same. So that actually wasn't a a difficult step. I think I would actually say with my red tractor hat on, I think my concern is that uh, you you can't actually you, you don't necessarily know when you're buying something where it comes from. So, you know, you know, I think some of the retailers are trying, but at the end of the day, if somebody wants a lettuce, they want a lettuce. And if, if you've got some from Spain and some from the UK, and you've actually got them both on the shelf, you don't want to give them separate barcodes or separate places. So I think they might have a separate barcode, but I just sort of feel that from it's much more difficult if people are trying to buy local, which we all know something On the whole, I mean, that's the trouble with all these things. It's not black and white. You know, it isn't always necessarily better to get by local, but it generally is. If somebody's trying to do that, that makes it much harder if you can't see country of origin um, on on an online um, website.
0: And I've just had a question in on WhatsApp. Do do I dare ask this? I've got to go for it. Could you ask, um, Christine, Morrison's has just been bought by the American... Oh, well, well uh, they use another word, but uh, American consul- consortium, do you think this is going to aid Morrisons? Is this going to accelerate or deaccelerate their sustainability goals, Christine?
1: Gosh. I think it all comes down to whether their sustainability goals are actually adding to their bottom line or not. And I'll go back. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm a bit out of date on some of these things, but I know when M&S put their plan A into place, they discovered that doing these things, because they thought they were going to get a good sort of greenwash and good marketing message, that actually it was more profitable to do it that way. And that's that's really why the whole thing is that if you if you apply your best brains to it, you you know to try and do the right thing by the environment, very often it is the way to make more money. And uh, all I can say with private equity ownership, you're going to have to deliver on the figures. And if they're doing the right thing by the environment, making more money, then they'll do it faster.
0: Um, Beverly, geez, do, can you see your you being a better business uh, progressing on uh, the sustainability front rather than if you did not? Question, it, question them from viewer.
3: Yeah, um, de- most definitely. And the the thing that's kind of closest to my my heart is how it affects the people that work with us. And as Kirsty was saying, it's really important that um, the people, all colleagues, are really aligned with the purpose. And if the purpose is something that they can really buy into um, and feel passionate about, then they're more likely to stay with us for longer. Yeah. You know, do more do more work while they're here, and um, and therefore that
0: immediately
3: translates to the bottom line.
0: Yeah, um, Judith, really interesting question here. Could you ask Judith which supplier sector is the best is at the forefront of sustainability, and if she can do, can she nominate any companies that we can follow on the likes of social media so we can learn from them? Feel free to 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 juggle that that uh, the response to that. As you feel feel fit, please.
2: <laughs> I, I couldn't name um course, yeah. in, individual businesses, but I would just say that anyone working in primary agriculture. Right now is right under the lens on all of this because, the kind of, there is a universal truth, there aren't many, but it doesn't matter what sector you look at or what um, product area you look at. Basically, around half of the impact occurs in primary production, and whether that's the extraction industries and mining, or whether that's farming and, and sort of agriculture and land use. So I I would look to those um, businesses that big businesses that are operating in that space because they know they have got to transition and whether that is investing in vertical farming, whether that's investing in regenerative agriculture and soil health, um, whether that's looking at geospatial technologies to help them, um, you know, with applications of uh, fertilizers and looking at nitrate runoff all of those kind of things there were some
0: really interesting
2: projects going on
0: yeah it's it's a uh that we, we had uh, Tim O'Malley of Nationwide Produce um, on um, uh, last week when we were debating the whole issues. And as he said, uh, with the fresh produce sector is in, in its zeitgeist at the moment, um, everyone wants to get as much fresh, fresh produce as, as they, they want. We need to, 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 to prosper on that. And on the ag tech side, we all need, need to go to you, Camilla, because you're, you're the expert in that sector. You'll be able to uh, advise us on that basis. We've done previous broadcasts about the uh, the funding aspect within ag and, um, and fresh produce. And I found it fascinating that at the last recession, um, all of the international funds came running into um, agribusiness because they saw it as a safe haven. And the same is happening now that the funds are running into agribusiness, but also in the, into the fresh produce sectors internationally. And not just to get involved with 2000 hectares of um, avocados in Peru, but all the associated Ag tech um, elements, um, be that the likes of Camilla's business, um, but also some some of the other data centric, data centric sites. So there's, there's this, this clamor, there's this interest to, to get involved. And then we get the oddities of, of, of Bless him. I know he's uh, one of Debbie's uh, favorites, Jeremy Clarkson, who's just a, a um, give raise the profile of, uh, of agriculture to, to to another level so so everyone we're slightly uh, looking, looking to run out of time before we go to get into the breakout rooms it would be great to get a sort of closing statement from all of you on on board as, uh, as some of the founders of the of the group as to where you think sustainability within the food sectors is going to be two three years from, from now is it going to be a big thumbs up from from yourselves it, are we going to create the success are we going to make this different difference in the uk and internationally or are we going to use my expression again going to keep on hating roadblocks that we're going to have problems to to to, to get around so, so who should we pick on first christine where are we going to be in three years time on this whole sustainability element is that a thumbs up or a thumbs down uh, thumbs up but i'm not going to answer your
1: question any further than that because I think that this is an absolutely fabulous industry for people to come into, and I want you know that's where I think MDS has got this fabulous role. It doesn't matter whether you've done engineering or languages or geography or agriculture as a degree, get into the industry, and MDS is one of the routes in. There are many others, but this is the industry to get into to make a difference.
0: Oh, I didn't realise we've been sponsored by MDS, Kirsty. We've been sponsored by by you, fantastic. Kirstie, what, what's your view with everything that you're seeing with your, your amazing trainees coming through the, the MDS system? Are you positive about the future? Are you a thumbs up or your thumbs down in the respect of sustainability? Um,
6: I think I'm a, a thumbs up and I think we're going to be um, forced to make a change, not just by people wanting to work within the industry, but um, the generation that's coming up, it's, it's a focus for them. They want change, they are worried about their future um, and they are going to be the ones in charge at some point, so they're going to make us change.
0: Yeah, well well said, spot on. Uh, Debbie, uh, I'll, I'll give you Jeremy Clarkson's mobile number, I'll WhatsApp that, see so you a little bit later, but you probably already got it. What's your view on the, on the subject? Thumbs up, thumbs down, three years definitely,
5: out? Definitely thumbs up, wonderful industry, and the more that any of us can do to showcase And tell the stories like Jeremy Clarkson does, but perhaps in a slightly different way, they're better because it's helping people change their minds positively.
0: Fantastic. Debbie, we've got to get you on Clarkson's farm. That's just a (laughs) given. Just just let me make a call. Camilla, with with your expertise of you and your colleagues, if there's one thing that I've learned about this sector, there is so much... Uh, profitability held up within the supply chain, and with the magic dust that you can provide with your with your business, I'm, I'm I'm sort of slightly leading the witness here, but I'm guessing that you're positive about the future.
4: Yes, absolutely. I think the thing that uh, makes me feel the most positive is actually um, the shift that I've seen in attitudes, both within the farming community, the amount of dialogue that there is about either shifting to regenerative practices or reducing inputs and measuring how those changes are actually input, improving both farm profitability and um, the farm's environmental impact and really thinking about that, but also, um, aside from agriculture, the shift that I've seen among my friendship group and the people I talked to in London, when I talked to them, and even over the last five years, when I used to say I worked in agriculture, they were like, oh, all right, whereas now, Wow, you work in agriculture, you're right at the coalface of something that can really help the environment. And that's being seen as something that's a lot more exciting. And I think as, um, as everyone else has been saying, having that energy and drive to improve is going to be important
0: going forward. Camilla, well said. Uh, global president of G's. I've just re-promoted you, Beverly. So, so with what Camilla says, you, you must be excited. That um, I would hope that you, you got some um, more people rushing, um, not knocking mm. on your door, looking to join uh, to join G's. But what mm. what's your thought with your with your own personal views and that of G's? Are you positive about the about mm. the future and the, and the direction that G's is going? Yeah, I'm.
3: I'm a thumbs up for two reasons. The first one is I. I think it is a non-negotiable one. I, I think we won't have a choice because of the next generation, the millennials, the generation Zs, whether they want to come and work in agriculture like Camilla was talking about and Kirsty, but also there are consumers of the future. So we've yeah, got also. to do it. But I think secondly, I think there's enough people within primary production and certainly in horticulture that are determined not only to do the right thing in their own businesses, but also to get out there and help communicate the value and the benefits of this so they can help to move minds um, on a wider scale and wider basis. So I just I think we just need kind of one or two or three real ambassadors to get the messages out there and that'll make a big difference.
0: Judith, you're, you're like a, a bumblebee in some respects that you've got this ability to go and visit companies and organizations on a, on a UK international basis. And as a bumblebee, you're picking up pollen, you're picking up information. Is there anything that you've picked up today that you didn't know uh, that you'd like to commun- communicate to us?
2: I think what has become very obvious um, uh, throughout uh, this discussion has been something that I had discounted. So I spend a lot of my time with boards um, on things like TCFD reporting, which is very much around looking at the risks of climate change, and we'll have the same with nature soon with with, um, TNFD. And and looking at how you mitigate those risks and how you build your future strategy in a climate, you know, future or climate change future. I've always thought that everyone underplays the role of innovation in this, and that that actually there will be some real winners in in the whole climate change scenario, which will be the businesses that invest, do the right things, um, and really um, make sure that they adapt to a a new world. And I have always thought that there wasn't enough emphasis on the innovation, the adaptation, and and how we create, excitement around having to do big stuff and do big stuff at pace and scale um, in a way that we've never done before. And I'm just listening to everybody um, this evening. I realise that this sector has got people with big enough and bold enough ambition to be able to do that. So I feel very reassured by the conversation.
0: So thank you. Christine, would you like to wrap up for us?
1: wasn't sure you were going to give it back to me so i've already written to judith and i actually wrote to her in the in the chat saying thank you so much for doing this i know it will have been very inspirational for those who are watching especially the younger ones well done and thank you for
0: all you do for our industry look at that so and and everyone thank you
2: for inviting me it's um (laughs) it's great
0: thank you And and everyone, if you don't already follow Judith, just 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 do, because as I gave this example of the the city food lecture. And Judith, we're very blessed that she does a lot of these online. And and hopefully as we as we get uh, more back into normal world, whatever that looks looks like more more speaking. And she's known as one of the the best speakers in in our in our industry. So if you want to find out what is going on within the food sectors, uh, follow follow Judith. Um, So, Christine, we're all set for next month. I don't know how we could top uh, uh, Judith. but. Uh, We'll push out the the email shortly. And uh, over to you, do you want to give one more push for Women in Food and Farming and your great organisation?
1: Just join us if you can. It's free to do so, and it just adds to the email list, which means that we'll let you know every time we're doing something. And this whole Women in Food and Farming started by individuals us telling other people about it and inviting them along. And if we all told one more person about it, um, well, it would firstly double my membership, but it would just mean that
0: we're getting more people know. So thanks. Christine, thank you. And I've, I've just had a printing contact um, is offered to do your new business cards, uh, Beverly, for free. Do you want a thousand or two thousand cards with your new title, of Global Head, Global President of of G's? What, what number would you like? Or should we just go for around five thousand?
3: Around five thousand. And it sounds like there'd be quite a big business card to get that title
0: on. <laughs> we like big titles. Well <laughs> done, everyone. I, Thank you, Kirsten, we'll, we'll stop the live feed and we'll go to the breakout room. So everyone, stay stay in. Uh, the fantastic uh, Kirsty's going to put us in the breakout rooms. So we're going to say goodbye to Facebook and goodbye to LinkedIn. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast of Women in Food and Farming with Beanstalk Global. Thank you. Da, 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 da.